Hi, and welcome to episode 12 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I'm Cricket Lou here with my co-host, Matt Larson. Hi there. And we are in our in our 12th episode already. That's amazing, isn't it? Yes, it's taken much longer than I thought it would be to get to 12 episodes. <laughs> well, well I, I put up I put up 100,000 plus miles on uh, on United this year and I think that uh, I think that you did too. Actually, I should take that back. I qualified for 1k, but I took advantage yes. of that uh, that double uh, elite qualifying miles uh, uh, promotion. Well, let's impress our listeners with the number of miles that we've flown. Do you have a browser in front of you? Let's compare United elite qualifying miles. Elite qualifying miles for you mean f- just for this year? Just for this year, yeah. Okay. Well, if you want to, okay, if you want to do that, we can do that. I see where you're going, and we can go there too. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, I, I might, I might lose, uh, I might lose in the yearly count, but I think, I think in the the longer the marathon, I think I'm I'm ahead. Yep. All right. So what do you, what do you got there? How many elite qualifying miles on United do you have for 2009? Well, uh, to be more precise, on Star Alliance. Uh, partners, I have 101,591. Oh, well, I have only 148,445. Damn, 148? Yes. Wow, you, you probably would have made uh, 1K fair and square, right, without the promotion. I would have. I was on track to do that. Wow. Well, you were you were back and forth to Asia several times for uh, ICANN and um, IETF, right? That's right. It was four four crossings of the Pacific in twenty one days. Ugh. I do not recommend it. No, no. That's like. Do you remember when when we were running Acme Bite and Wire and we were teaching those uh, internet security classes at HP? I do. And and I, I think. Oh, gosh, we did one in Europe, and then we did one in Japan. I, I swear it was... We both did one in London. Right, that's the one where I flew in that morning, and we taught... I, I think I flew in at, like, you know, 6 a.m. into Heathrow, and then we taught... We, pre- we prepped that day. It almost killed me. <laughs> you went to Japan by yourself, though. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So what about, what about Lifetime? What about Life- Lifetime? Yeah, well, I'm, you're going to get me there. Lifetime, uh, call it 542,000. Okay, nine hundred and fifty-three thousand. Yeah, and that's that's mostly the hard way, right? I mean, a lot of that's domestic. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've certainly I've certainly been to to Europe and and to Asia plenty uh, <laughs> on Star Alliance carriers, but uh, but yeah, a lot of that is domestic. Well, this is fascinating for all our listeners. I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure they're riveted. <laughs> Um, should we actually talk about uh, some DNS-related stuff? I think we should. So uh, why don't I open the mailbag, and uh, I will go to our first question. Um, so it's a, a little long, but I'm going to read the whole thing anyway, because I think uh, that'll have it make the most sense. So okay. this is from uh, Paul Peterson, mm-hmm. and he writes... We have offices around the world, and we plan to put up a website so that when requests come in, based on the request, the website will respond with the appropriate content related to that office in their local language. And the name of this company is uh, Baker something or other. So he's talking about having a a baker.cn in China and a baker.hu in Hungary and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, his uh, CTO came to him and told him to, uh, you know, go register all those names and uh, just make that work. And he said to his CTO, well, I, I don't think it quite 
works as you think it does and it's not quite that easy and he's trying to figure out how to do this and he said i suspect i have to contact each registrar and by this i think he means like registrar for each country code uh he might be using registrar when he means registry or kind of meaning both at the same time right and tell them to put my dns name server in the domain name registration record mm-hmm. but i don't think it's that easy and he's and he said doesn't my provider have to be registered with a registrar to provide dns for that registration or do they have to be registered with a tld is there a DNS provider that has that much reach that we should be using them instead of the one I'm using? And he says, am I missing something? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting question. So I guess the first thing that we should, we should say is that there are some registrars that handle registration for lots and lots of different top-level domains, right? Yeah, I think that's pretty much the case for a lot of registrars because it'd be hard to be a registrar and have only a small portfolio of uh, top-level domains that you sell out of. You know, the more that you can sell uh, out of, the more alternatives you can pre- present your customers and the more domains you sell. Exactly. So I'm looking at Dotster's homepage right now, and to judge from their little find a domain widget, it looks like in addition to ComNet and org, there are all kinds of country code top-level domains like uh, US and CA, which is Canada's, um, co.uk, which is the United Kingdom, um, there are uh, a few that are, are not particularly well-known, like .cc and .md, uh, .de, which is Germany, .cn, which is China. So this actually covers, you know, quite a quite a bit. Um, but on the other hand, there are still some country code top-level domains that do insist that you have, um, is it a, a, at least one authoritative name server that's in the country? Well, I think it runs the gamut. I, you know, I can't remember any specifics from any uh, country code TLDs. I know in past episodes we've talked about the technical requirements that some CCTLDs provide, that all your name servers must be authoritative at the time of uh, registration, and uh, right. they, they do checks on things. Um, but I'm, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, though. There are different TLDs that have different requirements, and that's really part of the problem here is, is navigating mm-hmm. all that. Right, just keeping track of it all. Uh, so I guess one of the things that we should mention is that there are also companies that sort of specialize in handling registration for other companies in all kinds of different, uh, different top-level domains, right? Yes, and this field is called brand management services, typically in a, in a DNS context. Right, right. And you guys owned one once upon a time. We, we did, um, and I'm not going to embarrass myself by saying what I think the name of it was, of the company we bought was, because I don't remember with 100% certainty, and I'm also not 100% certain whom we sold it to. So let's just leave it that for a long time, VeriSign was in the brand management business, but um, not anymore. Right, right. I, I was going to specify that it was, I, when, when I said you guys, I meant VeriSign and not the Larson family. Oh. <laughs> so some of the companies that do that are, are um, like Mark Monitor, don't they do that? Uh, according to their website, they do, and, and I seem to have heard that separately. Yeah, I, I, I don't have any personal experience with them, but I've, I've heard of them before. And uh, Melbourne IT, we were, you know, we should probably confess to our listeners that we checked their websites right before we started recording. Yeah, we did. We didn't know this off the top of our heads. Yeah, so I think the, um, to kind of sum this up, 
this is certainly something that uh, you can do on your own if you are willing to navigate all the various different requirements. And in most cases, you certainly can use whatever your current name servers are to be authoritative for any TLD, although, as you mentioned, there are TLDs that do have specific requirements like you know, one or more name servers must be physically in the, in the country. But you're really much better off if you have to do this on a large scale to just buy a service, buy a brand management service from somebody and just tell them, you know what, I want this string. Uh, in uh, Paul's case, it would be Baker. I want you to find me Baker in every TLD and just just register it and make it happen for me. I wonder if there'd be any any price break if you registered everything that you could through a big um, registrar like a Dotster or Register.com or Network Solutions and then went to a, the brand management company to handle the rest. Might be. Yeah, I mean, yeah. one of the advantages of the brand management company is that then they take care of, uh, and maybe this is stating the obvious, but uh, I think it's not to be underestimated, the uh, value of their taking care of all of the ongoing maintenance and uh, renewal. So you just don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about missing an email and, you know, losing baker.org or whatever. Right, right, right. Well, good. Shall I read uh, the second uh, question that we have? Sure. All right. The second listener question comes from Ismail, who actually is uh, a, an Infoblox user who came to uh, a roundtable that I did in... Stamford, Connecticut, uh, earlier this year. And he says, Hello, Mr. DNS or Cricket or Matt. Cricket may remember me as the annoying pain in the butt asking too many questions and making too many comments when he gave his DNS sec spiel in Stamford, Connecticut in October. And, and he wasn't annoying. He had lots of good questions. Anyhow, I'm trying to educate myself on DNS sec and have found something concerning to me. Referring to RFC 4033, section 8.1, which says in part, uh, now I'm going to be quoting RFCs. This is this is bound to you know keep people's interest. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I'm fascinated. I'm hanging on your every word here. But all okay. right, very good, very good. He says, uh, or, or the TTL reads, uh, TTL values cannot extend the validity period of signed RR sets in a resolver's cache, but the resolver may use the time remaining before expiration of the signature validity period of a signed RR set as an upper bound for the TTL of the signed RR set and its associated RR sig RR in the resolver's cache. Now, if you can follow that, if you can follow <laughs> follow that, you're 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 ahead of me certainly at uh, uh, at this stage of the game. He says, uh, as I understand the snippet, uh, caching resolver may decide to retain the lifetime past its TTL up to the RR sig validity expiration time. This concerns me because I quite commonly decrement the TTL on specific address or CNAME records in anticipation of some work that needs to be done, such as migration. Also, if and when I have to implement a GSLB solution, many of these rely on short TTLs configured in DNS. My expectation is that remote resolvers will attempt to revalidate the record when the TTL expires. I'm concerned that a security-aware resolver will retain the record past my stipulated TTL because the RR-SIG's lifetime will likely be much longer. Um, so let me see if I can sort of sum up what I think Ismail's worry is. Um, so resource records, all resource records, of course, have time-to-live values associated with them, and those time-to-live values dictate how long um, name servers that cache those records can hold on to them. But 
in DNSSEC, there's also a validity period associated with a record. It, however, has to do with how long, uh, how long an RRSIG record, which is sort of a digital signature for assigned RR set, how long that signature is valid. And I think what Ismael is saying is he's worried that if he has, a, for example, an address record for his web server that has a TTL of, of a minute, but the RRSIG record that signs that address record is valid for a month, that some recursive name server is going to cache the address record and see, oh, okay, the signature is good for a month, therefore I can cache this for a month. Do you think that's right? I think that's exactly what he's saying, yeah. And this is um, a common area of confusion because both the traditional time-to-live value that everybody who's worked with DNS is familiar with, uh, both the TTL and the new concept of uh, signature validity periods, they both deal with time. And so I think people tend to assume that, well, they, they must be related and, and interact. And, and it's true that there is limited uh, interaction, but for the most part, um, they really are talking about two completely different things. Um, the TTL that we're all familiar with, uh, that's uh, a cache coherency mechanism. That's, that's simply uh, how a cache knows whether or not the data is still good. You know, it's, it's how long it should be trusted. Well, everybody knows what the TTL is. Um, whereas the, uh, the RRSIG, the signature validity period, that's something completely different. That is, from a security standpoint, that is uh, a cryptographic assertion of this data is cryptographically valid uh, starting at this time period and ending at this time period. That's how DNSSEC says, you know, this data is good uh, from this starting point to this ending point. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, those two values don't don't interact. The, the TTL continues to be the TTL. That's something that the cache worries about. And the signature validity period is something that the DNSSEC validator worries about. Now, granted, most of the time, those two entities are part of the same process. You know, we've got a recursive name server that uh, has a cache, and it also is doing DNSSEC validation. Right. But Ismail is onto something in that there is uh, one way that these do need, do need to interact, and that is, let's say that you have uh, a record and its signature coming in, and let's say that the TTL on that record is uh, a full day, let's say, so mm -hmm. a 24-hour TTL on this address record, let's say. Uh, but then the signature validity period ends uh, one hour from now. Because remember, TTL is uh, is not an absolute time. It's just a it's just a time value. It's relative. It's yep. relative. Thank you. Uh, whereas signature uh, inception and uh, expiration times they are absolute times. So the uh, recursive name server could look at this and go, well, all right, uh, I would normally be able to keep this record for 24 hours based on its TTL, but the validator would look at it and say, wait a minute. Uh, according to the signature's expiration time, this is only cryptographically valid for one more hour. So in this case, what the recursive name server does is it trims the TTL to one hour. Because exactly. the validity period ends within inside the TTL, it lops it off because mm -hmm. you don't want to keep the data in your cache longer than the owner has said it's cryptographically valid. Right. But it would never do what Ismail is worried about, which is to say, oh, uh, 
you know, the TTL is, is one day, but, you know, the signature expiration is a month. Therefore, I'm going to extend the TTL. It's, right. it's still going to it's still going to age out the resource record set from the cache after a day. Absolutely, that's sort of the opposite of the behavior that I just described. Right, and in fact, uh, this is documented in the DNSSEC RFCs. Uh, in fact, in RFC forty thirty five, uh, in section five point three point three, checking the signature, and I won't bother to to read that section. I think we've done enough reading from RFCs for one episode. (laughs) But uh, once again, I wish I could just, I I should just stop there and everyone can go, wow, Matt knows actual section numbers by heart of of RFC 4035. But but in fact, this is one more thing that we checked before we started recording. We're we're maturing though, because we're actually actually investing time up front. (laughs) Yeah, as opposed to just starting to record and hoping it goes well. Not that we've ever done that. No, 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 no. Yeah. Of course not. But the, yeah, the gory details of this behavior are in uh, RFC 4035, section 5.3.3, that describes this uh, TTL trimming behavior. Fantastic. All right. Well, that's, I think, two good answers. Um, and we were going to talk at least briefly about, uh, about the signing of the root, right? Yeah, we thought we'd uh, wind up the episode with kind of some DNS news tidbits because... There's often not a lot of DNS news, but there's been some stuff going on recently, and we thought we should talk about it. Yeah. And the, the big thing is uh, signing the route. So one of the reasons that I have so many flight miles from this year is that I've been jetting around talking about the route signing project, which is uh, a joint effort between ICANN and VeriSign. Uh, ICANN and VeriSign cooperate today uh, to edit, uh, create, and publish the root zone. And by publish, I mean, you know, make available to all of the root servers. And then it gets even more complicated because Verisign and ICANN are actually root server operators. So we, we, wear, we wear multiple hats in this process. But uh, the U.S. Department of Commerce uh, asked Verisign and ICANN as their technical partners in handling the root zone to come up with a solution for signing the root. They gave us a requirements document. That's been public now for some time. Uh, let me see if that's on the web page when that was published. Uh, when was it published? I guess um, it was earlier this year. I'm not exactly seeing the date on it, but it was, uh, yeah, I guess it was May or June, I think, maybe maybe over the summer um, mm-hmm. that requirements document was published. And so we've been uh, beavering away on a technical solution and there's a whole bunch of documentation that we're producing and some of that has started to trickle out and in fact it's being published uh, on the department of commerce's website which is uh, all right here we go it's www.ntia and that's the uh, national telecommunications and information administration a, a department of the doc so www.ntia.doc.gov slash dns slash dnssec HTML, and that page has the history and current status of what's going on and also links to documents. We're actually going to be setting up a dedicated website for signing the route that's going to serve uh, much the same purpose but won't be buried deep within DOC's webpage. And oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, we figured that was a, a good thing to do. We don't, we don't have that quite ready yet. Uh, we're, we're working on it. But... Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of an, it was an exciting week because one of the milestones in the project was uh, actually signing the route uh, in production, if you will, for the first time mm-hmm. on December first. Wow! 
I'd forgotten about that. I think I read about it, but forgot. Yeah, so that's that's the good news. Uh, you know, the route was signed. Um, I guess the not as good news is, uh, you know, nobody can see it yet. <laughs> it's only for internal use uh, between VeriSign and ICANN. Uh, VeriSign and ICANN are exercising our uh, technical processes and our operational processes because the way the uh, architecture works, and I should add that there is a high-level architecture document. It's about 10 pages, and uh, it's really quite readable. That is on the DOC webpage that I uh, read off a moment ago. And that would be a good place to start for anybody who wanted to know, well, what, what the heck are these guys up to and how is this going to work? And one of the things described in that uh, high-level architecture is who does what, the roles and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And uh, VeriSign uh, today uh, edits the root zone. We make the changes to it, and then we uh, publish it and make it available to the root operators. And the signing step really happens between those those two other operations. You know, the, the root zone gets created, uh, then uh, we sign it, and then we publish it. So the way the roles and responsibilities are going to break down, VeriSign will hold the zone signing key, which is what does the day-to-day -day signing, uh, whereas ICANN is going to hold the key signing key. And the key signing key's job is to sign the zone signing key, which then signs the rest of the zone. And that means that there has to be this interaction between VeriSign and ICANN. We need to send them uh, zone signing keys, and they need to sign them and send them back. It's, it's a little bit more involved in that, but that's, that's essentially the nature of the interaction. And so uh, we've all got the code written, and uh, we're, we're exercising that right now. We're, we're sending stuff back and forth, and in the process of doing that, we're uh, making a root zone as well. And there's now a, a real timeline for publication of the signed root zone too, right? I, I remember, in fact, I think I know what the date is, but I would, I would prefer that you announced it. Yes, well, so starting in January, and I don't think we've said what the exact date is going to be yet, so I don't want to spill the beans if I'm if I'm early. But it's sometime in January, uh, we're gonna we're gonna start publishing the root zone, the signed root, and we're actually gonna do this in kind of a novel way. I think this is the first time there's been a DNSSEC deployment done this this way, um, rather than doing sort of a big bang and going from an unsigned root zone on every root server to a signed root zone on every root server, you know, within the propagation time of the root zone, which is typically uh, really just a couple of hours by the time every root server gets the new root zone. So instead of doing that, having a flash cut, uh, we're going to roll it out incrementally. So we're going to have, uh, starting in January, we're going to have one root server out of the 13 will serve the signed zone, and the other 12 will serve the unsigned zone. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, so we're calling this uh, the DURS, the D-U-R-Z, uh, because it's actually not possible to use this signed zone for anything. It's uh, it's unvalidatable. We're actually going to change the keys so that there's mm -hmm. no possible way you could validate with this zone. We don't want anybody to get in a situation where they look at the zone and they say, oh, look, there's a signed root coming from one of these servers. I'll just go ahead and extract the key from that zone and mm -hmm. uh, I'll configure it as a trust anchor, and I'll be off and running uh, with a signed root. Well, for one thing, until the root, the signed root is at every root server, that would be a terrible thing to do because if you ever got an unsigned answer from one of the root servers still serving the unsigned version of the zone, uh, your validator would freak out. It would go, wait a minute, you've given me a trust anchor for the root zone, which tells me that everything in the root zone should be signed, 
Yet here I see an unsigned answer. So there must be some kind of an attack underway. I'm going to mark the root zone as bogus and, you know, things go downhill from there. Yeah, yeah. So rather than uh, rather than having that be even remotely possible, we're going to make the zone unvalidatable. Hence, uh, so it's the deliberately unvalidatable root zone, the Durs. <laughs> so is the idea then that people who have, well, I guess you wouldn't get, would you get any kind of signatures in responses, even if you didn't um, intend to do validation, because you wouldn't be sending, um, you wouldn't be sending queries with the DNSSEC OK bit set unless you actually had a, a trust anchor configured for the root zone, right? Uh, oh, that's actually not the case. Um... Oh, that's right. That's right. We we had this argument, and this is the one where Dave I, Dave Black had jumped up and down, <laughs> right? Well, I, he's probably screamed at his uh, at his iPod multiple times, but I think this was one of the times. Yes, right. So, so there are uh, name servers out there that are going to set DNSSEC okay regardless, and they'll get the signatures back. But because it is unvalidatable, you'll mostly be exercising the sort of you know trying out larger responses and that sort of thing, right? Exactly, and that is exactly the reason we're doing it this way. I hadn't mm. hadn't gotten to that point yet, so thank you for making sure that we did get there. Uh, because really, that that's the thing that uh, if there's any cause for uh, concern or uncertainty, it's surrounding that. It's surrounding the fact that uh, because there are all of these uh, recursive name servers that today are sending queries with the DNSSEC OK bit set, which means, hey, if you've got signed data, give it to me. Uh, mm -hmm. All of a sudden, they're going to start getting these responses that are much larger because they've got keys and signatures and NSEC records right. and all that kind of stuff. And we want to make sure that that doesn't inadvertently break somebody who's happy today because they can get uh, traditionally sized DNS responses in UDP that don't exceed 512 bytes. And little do they know that they've got a firewall that's, you know, maybe not up to date and doesn't realize that with EDNS zero, you can have larger responses. And so mm -hmm. suddenly they start getting larger responses and their firewall says, oh, no, you don't and drops the responses. And, you know, we, we want to stop that from happening all at once. The idea is mm -hmm. that if we roll out the, um, the DURs gradually, the other thing that, that goes along with this is an extreme amount of monitoring on the part of the root server operators. We're going to be watching what happens and be trying to detect uh, any problems. And this is admittedly going to be a really tall order because there's a, a lot of traffic to the root and a lot of it is junk anyway. So right. it, you know the needle in the haystack here is going to be pretty small. But what we're going to be looking for is uh, one of the main things is traffic shifting around. Like if we suddenly start serving the signed root from one server uh, and, and traffic on that server goes down significantly, then we'd know something's going on because that would indicate that recursive name servers are sending queries. Maybe they're not getting responses, so they're trying other servers, and then they're mm -hmm. no longer trying that server. Yeah, yeah. Now, wasn't there uh, an announced July 1st uh, milestone as well? Yes, and that so that's the date. Uh, so before we get to July 1st, uh, we'll have the Durs running. Uh, I just like, it's just kind of fun saying that, Durs. <laughs> it's it's something that I think teenage kids say to their parents a lot. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, so the Durs will, will have been running. Uh, we want to get to a steady state where we have the Durs running on all of the root servers. So we have a couple of weeks at least. It's going to be more like several weeks where we're in the state of signed root everywhere, but unvalidatable. And the July 1st date that, that you mentioned, that's when we flip the switch and uh, kill the DERS. We actually, uh, ICANN will publish the trust anchor for the root zone. 
we will actually publish the keys in the root zone and people can use the signed root. So that that's the big flag day, July 1st, 2010. Wow. Very exciting. It is. It's cool yeah. to be involved with. Great. Well, as a member of the general public, I'm certainly very, very excited to see this uh, rolling out. So the other big piece of news in, uh, in DNS this week was the introduction of Google's public DNS service, I think. Yeah, that was kind of a bolt from the blue. Did anybody know that was coming? Of course, you know, do, you ever, do you ever know anything is coming with Google? I, I certainly didn't know it was coming. I did know um, that Google ran their own name servers, although I, I knew that they ran, I think, their own authoritative name servers because they were doing that Hex 20 uh, testing, and I think Google's name servers uh, you know, would, would downcase or something. So yes, I, I, I knew that they that. had their own authoritative name servers, but I didn't know anything about this this uh, you know public recursive offering. And it's, it's sort of ignited a, a firestorm, hasn't it? Yeah. Well, and did you see the uh, the IP address? They got a great IP address for it. Uh, oh, 8.8.8.8 and 8.8.4.4. Yeah, I think we'll be remembering that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> that that's probably the best thing about it. <laughs> yeah. That's that's yeah. my new favorite ping target for when I need to know if uh, you know, I can get to the internet or not. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you need to, you know, fire off a query, it replaces 4.2.2.1, I think, right? Yeah. That was oh, You know, the old, I use 4.2.2.2. Oh, I see you're one of those. Yes. It reminds me of that Star Trek episode. Remember where they had the guys with the, the one of them had the, uh, he was left white on the left side of his face and black right. on the right side. And then the other guy was the reverse and they right. hated each right. other. And whenever they, whenever, whenever they met, it was the end of the universe, right? Yes. It was this, there were, there were the, these cataclysmic events and, and things when they would, uh, when they would fight and they hated each other. Right. But I, you know, if, if you want to use 4.2.2.1, I'm not going to hate you for it. I'm... Isn't wasn't the guy who played? It wasn't that Frank Gorshin from Batman. Oh man, I have no I idea. Wanna, I want to say it was Frank Gorshin who played, um, gosh, one of the villains, like the Riddler or something. I think. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly, but, um, but it, it, I know there's some controversy over this new uh, this new Google offering because you know some people think it's this big power grab and that uh, you know Google s seeks to control even more of the internet than they already do. Well, I think it probably is that. I mean, it would be a wonderful source of data. I would love to be sitting behind those recursive name servers and looking at all the traffic. I, I tend to agree with you that that by doing this, they'll get. Uh, yet another sort of query stream, but this one even more raw than what they get by running their search engine, because they'll get to see queries completely unrelated to web-related um, web-related traffic. But what's kind of interesting about this this whole thing is that you know it, there is some controversy. But one of the things that Google is saying very clearly on their web page is that they are not doing. Um, I guess, annex domain rewriting, for lack of a better term, you know, right. they, they are not trying to, I hate this word, monetize the, the traffic like you see maybe, well, my local ISP, I have Verizon Fios service, and if I use their recursive name servers, uh, rather than getting an annex domain, you know, a name not found error, uh, I get an address record that points me to Verizon's web server which gives me an ad page and sort of were you really thinking of this kind of thing. And that's very exactly. common for, for ISPs to be doing. And uh, Google is not doing that. And so I, that, that doesn't really seem to be lost. P people have acknowledged that, but, but yet you, you'd think that would be a real 
uh, upside and people would go, oh, look at how positive this is. But instead, people are focusing more, at least in what I've seen, they're focusing more on the uh, aspect that you mentioned, the whole taking over the Internet. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is interesting, though. I, I, I definitely support them in that um, in that sort of anti NX domain redirection stance. Uh, there are a lot of reasons, I think, that we've already even discussed on this uh, podcast in previous episodes that that NX domain redirection, when applied indiscriminately, can be uh, can be somewhat dangerous. Um, just so seeing them take a stand against that, that is that is, I think, a, a really positive thing. But you sort of take the good with the bad. They have, they have, of course, a, a published privacy policy when it comes to these query streams, where they don't, you know, they won't retain any, um, you know, uh, uh, logs that are, are, you know, directly attributable to specific IP addresses for more than I don't know, 24, 48 hours, which is quite nice. Um, and in fact, you know, I think that most of most of uh, the folks out there who use ISPs. Recursive name servers probably have, you know, the, the ISPs probably have no such privacy policy. Um, but I, I imagine that they'll they'll continue to use the data. They'll simply anonymize it and throw it into a big database so they can uh, so they can keep looking at the, the query patterns. Well, have we reached the end of another podcast? I think we have. All right. Would you like to take us out? All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to Episode 12 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. Uh, remember, we really do appreciate your questions. Uh, so far, we have not had to make up questions because people have sent us actual questions. And please uh, keep doing so. And the address to do that is MrDNS, that's MRDNS, at ask-MrDNS.com. So until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.